0: Captain's log star date 4523.3. Deep space station K7 signals near or total disaster. State the nature of your
1: emergency. It's a tribble. <laughs> this morning I found out that he had babies. They do indeed have one redeeming characteristic. What's that? They do not talk too much. <laughs> this is my chicken sandwich and coffee. I want these things off the ship. I don't care if it takes every man we've got. I want them off the ship.
0: Jim, I think I've got it. All we have to do is stop feeding. Once we stop feeding them, they stop breeding.
1: radio drone David Gerald is one of those names you might not know off the top of your head the same way you would say Ray Bradbury or Harlan Ellison. I bring this up to David Gerald later in this interview. He kind of disagrees with me, but I think his writing is both original and strong enough to stand with these people. As I said, you may not know that name. But you definitely know this man's work. If for no other reason, you know him as the creator of Tribbles on Star Trek. He also wrote for many of your favorite science fiction shows. He was es- he was essentially the man behind Land of the Lost. David Gerald is a man whose work I think helped def- helped define my childhood. I'm 40 years old. Listen to my interview with David Gerald. Then go check out some of his stuff. Most of it is available on DVD. I apologize a little bit for a few of the spikes that you're going to hear in this. That's one of the problems with recording, recording from a cell phone. So I fixed those as much as I can. Otherwise, enjoy the interview with David Gerald. First of all, I want to say thank you, David Gerald, for taking my call and taking the time to speak with me because you're one of those names that's up there with Bradbury and Ellison and Asimov. So I feel lucky that you're willing to entertain me.
0: Well, that's, that's thank you, that's very high praise, but I still feel I have a long way to go before I can even carry their pencil box, since I have a lot to learn and a lot to filter. If somebody wants to put me up on that pedestal of fame, I'm not going to leap off eagerly. So. <laughs> you got your start with Star Trek,
1: and then you moved to classic Star Trek, and then you moved on to Star Trek, the animated series and whatnot. Did you have some of the same issues on, I'm just going to call it classic Star Trek, that People like Ellison and Richard Matheson have had that Trouble with Tribbles, the Cloud, mi- the Cloud Minders, and you know, you know, you did an uncredited rewrite on iMud, Were those the what you wrote essentially? What you what's up what wound up on the screen?
0: Uh, Trouble with Tribbles actually spoiled me because most of what I wrote, I would say like 90% of what I wrote, got to the screen it was one of the least revised scripts. I, it it went through more colored pages than most episodes, but it was like we're going to tweak a word here, not we're going to rewrite the whole scene. So, I would except for two scenes, it's all mine. And uh except for I would say maybe 10 lines of dialogue, it's all mine. So, and then the actors and the director got a hold of it and then they had so much fun building on top of it. That I was pleasantly surprised, but more than ple- I was extremely delighted because it was an opportunity to discover that I could have gone farther with some of the stuff I was writing. Was, oh, okay, I see what they what they do. And of course, when you're writing for Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, you're writing for actors who are incredibly good. They do nuance so well that they spoil you for everybody else. I wasn't really happy with the Cloudminders because Margaret Arman got to do the final script, and what she wrote I felt was competent, but not as ambitious as I wanted it, is where I wanted to go. I I felt that the script needed to have more anger in it, Uh, but that's just me. Um, I know Harlan Ellison uh, quite well. He's like a brother to me, and I understand why he felt that the rewrite on City on the Edge of Forever was uh, weaker than what he had written. Uh, what he wrote was ambitious. I think writers have to be ambitious. Uh, I never met Richard Matheson face to face. We did exchange some nice letters. I was absolutely delighted with his book, What Dreams May Come, and wrote him a fan letter and he was very gracious in his response. So, you know, sometimes you, you it, there's an old saying, sometimes you get the bear, sometimes the bear gets you. I was happy with one of my Twilight Zone episodes, not so happy with another. I was happy with my work on sliders. I was happy with my work on Tales from the Dark Side on one script, not as happy with what the director did to it in the next Land of the Lost. I thought some of the scripts came out great. There were a couple that the director did a rewrite on, and he's not really wasn't supposed to rewrite them without notifying the writers. And I wasn't too thrilled. But he did a, you know, capable, competent job, so I can't fault him for that. So you know, it's it's how the business is run. The writer is the most important part of the process. If he gets the structure right and if he gets great dialogue, you know, it works. But sometimes people think, Oh, I can make this better. Sometimes they do, sometimes eh. you know, I'm sure Joe Dante has said probably the same thing. It's a team effort and everybody wants to put their part in.
1: That's very true, except you wrote with Trouble with Tribbles, arguably one of the most memorable episodes of Classic Trek, and one of the few comedy episodes, I think, in all of Star Trek that works. Yeah, Star Thank Trek you. Star Trek has a bad track record with comedy episodes. They get a few, right? Deep Space Nine had a couple that worked. Next Generation, not so much. Enterprise and Voyager, not at all. Trouble with Tribbles is one of the few that you can say this is where Star Trek comedy actually worked. Was that Thank a you. challenge to, to try and do something that even at that point in season one Trek, was different? I was still trying different? to
0: do, I was trying to do something light, and Dorothy Fontana recommended it to Gene Kuhn and said this has whimsy, and I always tease her about the word whimsy. And I thought it would be a lighthearted episode. I did not start out thinking it would be a comedy. But as we worked through the various plot points and all of the various uh, developmental parts of it, let's use the Klingons. Let's have the Tribbles do this. Let's do this. It got more and more boisterous. And when we say, oh, we'll have the barroom brawl scene, and then here comes Cyrano prancing through it like Tony Curtis in The Great Race and, and not getting hit... The more it developed, the more it went from lighthearted to outright comedy, which I think in the long run was the right way to go. Uh, but I had never intended when I first submitted the outline for it to be that broad a uh, farce. But uh, as we got into it, we realized there are so many possibilities here. If we don't go there, we're we're, we're throwing away the opportunity. And I give L Kuhn enormous credit because there was the first draft was long. So I cut out the scene where Kirk says to Scotty, who started the fight? And Gino Kuhn said, that's the best scene in the script, put it back in. That's where most of your fun is, is in that relationship. And that was a great learning experience, because when I put that scene back in, I realized just how much of the script was about character.
1: Also, I think the comedy and the character is nailed perfectly
0: in There's One Line
1: of Dialogue by Dr. McCoy. Near as I can tell, they're born pregnant. Quite a time saver, don't you think?
0: That was a fun, a fun line to write, because up until that time, nobody had used the word pregnant. CBS had not allowed Lucille Ball to be pregnant. She could be expecting. The word pregnant was not on the air, and I put it in. Fully aware that broadcast standards on NBC might say, "Oh, you can't use the word," and it went by without an objection. So I was thrilled. I got to be the first person to say "pregnant" on the air, uh, or to write it. And uh, and and D. Kelly is such was such a joy to as a person and to write for. All the actors were, of course. So uh, yeah, that is a fun line. And uh, but I I think, and I'm going to quote Bob Justman here. He wrote a memo that I did get to see uh, where he says, the scene between Kirk and Scotty, who started the fight, may be the very best scene to demonstrate their relationship that we've had all season. And I think that that clued me in to the, the heart and soul of good writing is what happens in the space between two characters.
1: Well, that said, did you like how Deep Space Nine kind of put another twist onto that when they did their Trials and Tribulations episode?
0: I thought the script on that was brilliant I thought the production values were amazing they recreated the look and feel of the original Trek incredibly well Um, and that a lot of credit goes to Mike Okuda and and to the director Jonathan West the whole art department Uh, they went back to the original film stock the original lenses the original uh, uh, makeup so it had absolutely it, it matched perfectly and I was so thrilled and so delighted and, and so pleased uh, because it was such a nice homage.
1: Well, now, obviously you're you're famous for the Tribbles, which, by the way, I own two Tribbles. I own one of the 1991 re, um, 25th anniversary releases that a listener actually sent me. And then in 1998, they put out a VHS set of Trouble with Tribbles yeah. and Trials and Tribulations that had a little Tribble in it. I got I own that, too.
0: The uh, the best tribbles I've seen come from tribbletoys.com, although all one word, tribbletoys.com, and they make these wonderful tribbles that chirp and vibrate. And and uh, you, if you've been to Comic Con or Dragon Con, you've seen them, and they're just so much fun. So I I, uh, I uh, those are my favorite right now.
1: Well, and then after that, you moved on to Land of the Lost. I have a weird relationship with Land of the Lost. I loved it when I was a kid, I despised the old episodes as a teenager, and then I appreciated them much more for the stories and the imagination as an adult.
0: And you can thank Star Trek for that, because Star Trek's first season, Harlan Ellison convinced Gene Roddenberry, hire science fiction writers, they know how to do your show, you'll hit the ground running. So when I I was story editor on Land of the Lost, I was in charge of hiring writers. So I hired Norman Spinrad and Ben Bova, Weena Sturgeon, Dorothy Fontana, Dick Morgan, who had written a lot of episodes for my favorite show of all time uh, when I was a kid, was Space Patrol. So he came aboard, Uh, Larry Niven did a bunch of episodes for us. So I went and got as many science fiction writers as I could get because I could say to them, here's the land of the lost, and here are our limits, and here's what I need to do on a very small budget here's what we have, here's what you can't do. And without exception, every single one of those writers came back with a really good script. And and so I think that's one of the reasons why Land of the Lost looks so good. What is it, 40 years later, it looks so good because there were so many good writers telling, I said, write this story as if it's for a primetime show, even though we don't have a primetime budget. And I think that's why it works, because we had all those great writers aboard.
1: And I I don't know how you feel about the Will Ferrell movie. I I called the Will Ferrell movie a hate fuck to the original (laughs) series. I, I hated it that much. I think what most people take away nowadays from Land of the Lost is they're not looking at the stories and how inventive these ideas were and how out there these ideas were. They were just looking at, look at the goofy green screen
0: yeah well uh but you know what we go to uh the conventions and and wesley yore and kathy coleman and uh sometimes uh Philip uh paley who played chaka is there as well and the fans line up and not just the older fans but the young fans who are sitting and watching these shows with their parents they don't care about the special effects they identify very strongly with the family and they get caught up in the stories so Yeah, we know the show looks quaint and looks silly, but at the time, way back in 1974, it was pretty spectacular for a Saturday morning show. And if you look at it through the 1974 lens, it's a spectacular little uh, adventure. I would love to reboot it as a primetime series. I think there's a a lot of adventure you could tell as a primetime show.
1: Did you see the 1991 reboot? Did you have anything to do with that? Because I didn't have anything
0: to do with that. I did see a couple episodes of it, and I thought the production values were quite good, very good. And I don't mean this to denigrate the producers or the writers. I, I did not see the same inventiveness from the original series. Land of Lost is a very tricky series to write for. Uh, any science fiction show... You have to have somebody there who has a vision of how it all fits together and how, and, and a vague idea at least, or even a clear idea of what you're working toward. And you really want to, uh, you really want to have somebody who loves science fiction so much that they, they want to get inside and play with it. And I think, uh, too many writers see science fiction like they see Westerns. It's ray guns and spaceships and aliens and robots. And they don't realize science fiction is about the underlying idea, which is a whole other way of looking at the storytelling.
1: Exactly. Like with Land of the Lost, it, it, the, the, the special effects in that don't matter. Even, even though Holly always bugged me as a kid, she's necessary. The ideas are so, I don't want to say above the head of the audience, you know, since it was a kid show. But I didn't understand a lot of these when I was a kid. When I watch them as an adult, I see... The depth that you put into it, such as like the land requires balance. If one person escapes, another person has to be sucked in. That that's a really great concept.
0: Uh, let me say it this way: that I, I'll tell you, we could we could probably reshoot some of those scripts today without having to change much. We, I told my writers, uh, this is the secret of writing for a great kids show: you write for adults. And you write a story that kids, that's accessible to kids, but that will not bore adults, that there's an adult level. So that, like the old classic Rocky and Bullwinkle is that you watch it as a kid, and it's a great cartoon show. You come back as an adult, and you hear jokes that you didn't get as a kid. It's, that's the secret is that ultimately it's the parent who's going to watch the show with the kid or take the kid to the movies. So you want the parent to say, that was fun, too. And a lot of what I see being sold as children's fare is unwatchable. Even the kids look at it and go, eh, because it panders uh, as if kids are stupid. And kids aren't stupid. They may not have the, all the necessary information to sort things out, but they're sharp little monsters. And you, you, know, you disrespect them at your risk. And I did that show. I said, you know, we've got to love our audience. And our audience is going to include people, science fiction fans, and kids as old as 80. So we're going to love every one of our uh, people in our audience and make sure everybody has a good time watching.
1: And the slee stacks are just awesome.
0: Oh, the slee stacks were my favorite creation. I, I wanted really great scary monsters. And I said, they've got to be tall, nine feet tall. So we're going to get the tallest basketball players we can, and we're going to put them on stilts. And we're going to give them headdresses that raise it, you know, with horns on top that go up another foot, and and I'll tell you, the first time I saw the guys in the Flea stack costumes, even I was scared. <laughs> they were they were scary guys,
1: they and the were. headdresses
0: were perfect. You know that those those holes with the big eyes, and it's not easily visible, but there's a, a little grate behind the big the big plastic. Uh, eye uh, lens of the eye there's a little grate so if the the light shines through it looks insect-like and and you can even put a little light bulb in there so there's a little glow in the eyes and so if you get real close to a sleeve stack there's a depth to the eyeball that is scary as hell (laughs) and I love I mean of all the monsters I've ever created the sleeve stacks are one of my favorites
1: after that, you you took uh, quite a break from television, and I know you've written numerous novels. I've read some. I've read some of your Star Trek work. A friend of mine said the man who folded himself is the best time travel story ever written. I, I'll admit I haven't read that one yet, but now I want to. But well,
0: yeah, it it. Uh, I'll tell you what I did is I said what is every possible time travel paradox? I'm going to put them all into one story. But what again? What happened in the writing of it is the paradoxes became less important than what was happening to the hero of the story. And he's a very shallow character. I mean, I go back, I reread it and I just cringe. Oh my God, he's shallow, but he would be shallow to be so disconnected from the rest of the human race. And he becomes like a God because he can play with time. And that becomes what the story's about. Uh, his willingness to recognize the responsibility of being able to alter time. And uh, but uh, yeah, it it was uh, it was a very ambitious effort. I wasn't quite good enough to write it as well as it should have been written. But I hardly ever admit that because so many people still tell me they like the book.
1: After that, how did you get involved with the kids' cartoon that I'm sure a lot of people don't remember, The Biscuits? For for what I can tell, the audience and I might be getting it wrong, so I'm going off memory. It was kind of a medieval. Smurf-like little things, but they were like little teddy bear things, and then there was this slob that ran a castle or something?
0: They were puppies, and basically it was Hanna-Barbera. I think the Smurfs were on a different channel, but basically Hanna-Barbera wanted to do, or it's not Hanna-Barbera, I forget what, uh, I thought it was H.B. Anyway, whoever it was Ruby wanted... Ruby Spears,
1: perhaps? Sh-
0: yes, that was it. I think so. They wanted a show like the Smurfs, so they did the puppies. And the puppies are essentially, it's the Smurfs in dog suits. That was the way it was explained to me. And I thought, okay, fine, great. But there's this really great writer producer named Tom Swale. And he was one of the producers, and later on, uh, he was a producer for uh, the second, third season of Land of the Lost. He was, second season for sure. He was, uh, he worked for Donnie and Marie for a while. He was on, uh, I think there was a TV series called Hotel. Uh, he, but he was in a, worked a lot of different shows. And when I story edited Buck Rogers, he gave me a great script. Unfortunately, that set of scripts we did never got produced because they rebooted Buck Rogers before it got on the air. When he was producing the Biscuits, he called me and said, can you do a script for me? And I said, oh, I'd love to. Because I was doing some Saturday morning. I had done uh, The Real Ghostbusters and I forget what else. And uh, so it was always, what challenge haven't I taken on? And it's always, yeah, all right, I'll try the Biscuits. And uh, <clears throat> I did this script called The Swamp Monster. And of all the scripts I've ever written for television, that is the only one. I have a, a, um, a VHS copy of it, which I taped off the air. But it is the only one not available on DVD or Blu-ray, and it annoys the hell out of me because I would love to. I mean, maybe it's available on YouTube. Who knows what people put up there? but it annoys me because I would love to have a good copy of it because it was just a fun little script to write.
1: Well, then after the biscuits, you went on to, you mentioned earlier, Tales from the Dark Side. I'm going to guess the one that you were not happy with is if the shoes fit since you were credited as N. Ward instead of yeah, my, Gerald.
0: Yeah, my registered with the Writers Guild is my pen name, Noah Ward. I, I wasn't, angry it wasn't an it was just I didn't feel the script as it was shot represented my very best writing I had written it as a seduction uh, a, almost a homoerotic dis, uh, a seduction of this politician by this very cute redheaded busboy who turns out to be or bellboy who turns out to be the devil that I because I think you know if you can recognize the devil you're gonna run in run away the devil has to be seductive to catch you. So that was the way I wanted to play it. I, 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 you know, I, I've noticed in some of the scripts I've written for live-action television that the directors have a blind spot in some areas uh, that I haven't made clear or, or I haven't made it clear in the script how it's to be played. The way I was trained in acting and writing and directing is to write nuance. I learned that with Star Trek. And sometimes I forget to put that in the script Here's the attitude. So what happens is is there's a they direct it as if whatever was supposed to be seductive, they direct it as if it's evil from the very beginning. So the audience knows it's evil from the beginning. They know it's supposed to be seductive, that you don't recognize the evil until act three. And, but that's just me, you know. Uh, maybe Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's one of the ways I've written several stories that have gotten great reactions from the readers is, I seduce them into thinking something is wonderful, and then it comes up and bites you on the butt.
1: I remember reading an article that you wrote, in, I think it was Starlog back... Probably when, Starlog, yeah. Back, back when the it was about the Logan's Run TV series, so back whenever that was on the air. And you seemed kind of frustrated at that point with the process of working in TV. And I know Harlan yeah. Ellison and other people have gone endlessly about, you know, he said he'd rather put in time at the Egyptian House of the Dead than work in TV. Is, <laughs> is, 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 that all, is that the way it's always been? I mean, is, is anything really going to change in that regard?
0: It, it depends on the producer. If you have a producer who grew up with science fiction, who loves science fiction, a guy like Ron Moore, who I, I admire a lot, he knows how to make science fiction work very well. Uh, Joss Whedon, obviously. You look at Firefly, and that is just a brilliantly conceived show. James Cameron. But these are all guys who have strong personalities and a strong vision. With Logan's Run, it was a property that MGM owned, and they had a couple producers who really weren't – they were good producers, but they weren't tuned into science fiction. They were not science fiction producers. And I think that hurt us because uh, uh, I was trying to write a script that would, would have worked for Star Trek. And what I found with Logan's run, and it was very frustrating because so many people were working so hard, good people, Len Katzman, who later went on to Dallas, Dorothy Fontana, of course, good people, uh, but what frustrated me was that it was shallow when it should have been. We were having the opportunity to be really ambitious. And the script I wrote, Man Out of Time, it turned out well. it, It did turn out well, but I was frustrated I wanted to be a little more ambitious and, and funny. I wanted some humor in there. There was a thing I had discovered. The first thing that comes forward through time is a rabbit. It's a test thing. And I wanted Logan to pick it up and Rem, whose memories are a little scrambled says, Oh yes, this is related to the elephant and it is rabbits are somehow related to elephants. And I wanted as a sight gag, he was carrying it around for the rest of the episode and they thought they had an elephant and it was it would have been a nice gag to show how disassociated somebody who has grown up in the dome in the whatever you call that place where all the uh, Logan's run people were it's not it, were disassociated from their own environment their own history they had no knowledge of the world they were living in and and that they had to learn and I wanted and it was a little thing and and it got cut, and I got frustrated that. They, you know, some some producers, they want a clerk type this more than a writer. I like writers who bring you more than what you ask for. You know, some writers, you say, here's the story, and they bring you exactly that. And you can produce it, and it works. But writers who are really worth cherishing, you want to hug them and hold them, take them out to dinner, buy them chocolate, are the writers who say, well, you gave me this, but I added this to it, I brought this, and I discovered that, and I, because What they do is they show you there's more to the story, and they enrich the whole experience. And that's the kind of writer I fall in love with. Harlan is one of those writers. Dorothy Fontana, of course. You know, those are the writers who we cherish. Ray Bradbury, if you could get him a day. I mean, look what he did with the Moby Dick script.
1: For Bradbury, I'd say look at what he did with Ray Bradbury theater. There are episodes of that. Some of the ones he wrote that were original stories for that, such as The Murderer. It's one of the yeah, most yeah, fantastic yeah. half hours of TV I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, Ray is wonderful. You read Ray in chronological order. A lot of writers are like this. You read the writer in chronological order, and you get to watch the growth of a human being. You get to watch the growth of an, a talent. You get to watch the growth of the skill that they are mastering along the way. And Ray is one of those. I've been rereading a lot of his work recently. And, uh, uh, of course, my favorite is still the whole – Martian Chronicles era, the stuff he produced in the fifties and the sixties, it was just that, I, I, I mean, and I don't denigrate anything he did later on, it's just that's the work I grew up with, and to me that defines Ray Bradbury.
1: Harlan Ellison once brought up a producer that he worked with on The Sixth Sense named Stan, Stan Shepner, and he said yes. this was the attitude that that television had at the time towards science fiction, and I'm curious if this is the attitude you've encountered as well we're making the Saturday morning funnies to these, for these people, they're monkeys. He said that was the attitude that he was encountering at the time.
0: I would probably, well, I have walked out of offices where I hear that equivalent thought. It's, uh, we were uh, pitching Land and Lost a Return to somebody at ABC uh, along about 1986 or 7, somewhere around there, network vice president. Was to uh, started off. Well, here's what, how you're going to do Land of the Lost? And I said, excuse me, I created Land of the Lost. I pretty much know what you, how to do this show. And I know. And she says, well, you don't understand Saturday morning television. And I said, well, excuse me, but, you know, I just finished two scripts for the Real Ghostbusters and uh, etc. So well, you don't understand children. I said, my degree is in children's theater. I studied it with the woman who wrote the book on the subject. And and she, she wanted to play let me whip it out and show you mine is longer and i'm saying look I, you need to respect that i do know what i'm doing i can give you what you want but not if you're going to disrespect me oh you know i want a decent working relationship based on mutual respect and she was so and the guy who was with me from sid and marty croft the blood had drained from his face by this point because he knew i was throwing away a done deal and i said look i can't do the show for you if you're going to disrespect the writing, because I, you know, I'll produce this, I'll write it, I'll make it work, but not if you're going to tell me I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, the reason you're even interested in bringing Land of Lost back is because we did such a good job the first time around. So I got up and left the office. I said I don't need this job. I've got three other job offers. I've got a, you know, yeah. Uh, sometimes you are working for people who want to, you know, show you they have authority over you, and they're not interested you know but you want to work for a producer who is so in love with movie making or so in love with television and so excited about let's do this show because i want to see this show and nobody else has done it yet when you get to work for that kind of producer and there are a lot of them out there it's exciting and you uh, you're inspired you want to do your best when you work for someone who is in it for the money the power the glamour and the stepping stone to the next place it's just no, I, you know, I don't want to waste the next month of my life, the next year of my life, I, the next seven years of my life on this. I don't. And uh, I have walked away from jobs that I knew would give me an ulcer. Um, and Harlan does that, too. Well, Harlan is not writing for, gave up writing for television. But, but I was excited by the opportunity to do Twilight Zone when Harlan was creative consultant because I knew we would be ambitious, and the scripts we did were ambitious.
1: When I interviewed Joe Dante, he was pointing out the difference between working on Twilight Zone as a director and working on Amazing Stories. And this is the way he put it. On Amazing Stories, they had all the money in the world and no good ideas. On Twilight Zone, they had the best ideas you could ever come to and no money.
0: Yes, that's abs- he's absolutely right. I, Joe Dante, I have, I have met him and chatted with him uh, several times. He's uh, a very nice guy. And he's also a smart director because he loves, he loves the genre. And, you know, if I see directed by Joe Dante anywhere, I'm there because I know he'll do a great job. Uh, With whatever they throw at him, he'll find a way to make it work. So, um, yeah, he's right. He's right. Amazing stories was a colossal disappointment because, you know, here's all this talent and money and nobody there understood. What amazing the word what the word amazing really should mean. <laughs> it, it was it, it was
1: for for the Twilight Zone the or, or I I always call it the New Twilight Zone but it, I know it's not technically what it was called but like you've got stuff like Night Crawlers by William the William Friedkin directed episode or yeah. Saturday Day with Harlan Ellison oh, yeah. or or Paladin of the Lost Hour or or even A Day in Beaumont. These are fantastic ideas. Yeah, the special effects are a little goofy. Maybe the lighting's not the best, but the idea is better than the production.
0: I was supposed to do the Elvis script, and they pulled me off it and said, we want you to do this one instead, and I wrote a script for By His Bootstraps. At the last minute, they panicked. I guess they were, you know, it's the same four scenes over and over and over again. I said, yeah, but each time it's from a different perspective, and it'll work. And I said, oh, we're a little scared of this, and we went through a couple of rewrites. We couldn't find a way to make it work. I would go back to my first draft and say, this is it. This is, this will work. And someday I would love to shoot that. That was my only disappointment. For the most part, the ambition of that series was stunning, and I give a lot of credit to Harlan. Um, oh, if only I, we could ever—only
1: yeah. if we could have seen Knackles.
0: He was supposed to direct it at the last moment. He got into a fight with CBS about it. I forget what the fight was about, and he walked.
1: I've read I read uh, his script from the Twilight Zone magazine, and I've read yeah. I read the original uh, Westlake story. That would have been, and that would be a Christmas episode that was still talked about today if that had happened.
0: Oh, we'd be showing it every Christmas on Christmas Eve, that and Christmas Carol. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a funny little script called A Shaggy Dog Story, which I really wanted to do, and they all looked at it and just <laughs> shuddered. <laughs> no, it is it is a shaggy dog story. The classic shaggy dog story. But uh,
1: Well, how did you go from Twilight Zone to real Ghostbusters? And then, was this still when it was on the ABC Saturday Morning, or were your episodes in the first run syndication
0: series? Um, I think mine were season two or three. You'd have to look at the box set. And that was I got a call from Joe Straczynski, who I hadn't, I don't remember if I'd already met him, but we're moving in the same circles. And he says, can you write me a script for Ghostbusters? And I thought about it. I said, yeah, I think so. And I gave him an outline, which is, it was actually a variation on The Trouble with Tribbles. A Slimer gets split up into a million little Slimers. And then when they put all the little Slimers back together, they get a super large Slimer. So it's like King Kong. And it was just it was just one in joke after another, and that was called Adventures in Slime and Space. And uh, the funny thing about it is, after he approved the outline, I I didn't know how to write it for three or four days. So I put the I had the laser disc of the movie, and I put it on the player, and I watched about 20 minutes. And the first 20 minutes is mostly Bill Murray, and once I got Bill Murray's voice, his way of his his way of telling a line or a joke. I I ran to the typewriter and started typing, and once I had Bill Murray's voice, then I got Danny Aykroyd and and uh, uh, Harold Ramos, and and it all fell into place. The funny joke there is that when I went in for the taping, one of the uh, the woman playing Janine was an actress I had gone to high school with. I didn't get a chance to say hi to her then. It was years later that I had a chance to tell her. Uh, after that first one, then I wrote The Hole in the Wall Gang because then I, I understood who the characters were. And, and that one was about the bigger the hole, the bigger the ghost that can can come through. And and it became a Laurel and Hardy episode that by the time the guys were through, they had wrecked the entire house that they were supposed to uh, uh, dispossess and, or depossess, whatever. And that was even more fun for me and I had a great gag in it that Joe said, I take that one out because it's a little too much. But essentially there was a running gag about what do we do next? I don't know, look in the script. And uh, they get to the end, what do we do next? I don't know, they fired the writer. And there's, you go to a blank screen for a second and then the, you hear, well, I guess we'll have to figure this one out ourselves. And they come back and solve it. And, and I, I love that gag, but uh, uh, Joe said, uh, Take, please. That's the only time Joe ever rewrote me. That is the biggest change Joe ever made to a script I wrote for him. But I said, all right, you know, I, it wasn't worth fighting over because Joe was the producer and he was letting me have everything else in the script.
1: To be fair, Joe Straczynski is a great writer in his own right. So
0: Joe is one of the very best producers I have ever worked for. I would I would crawl through crawl naked over broken glass to write for Joe again. He respects writers and actors he respects story and he knows his science fiction if you say look here's the science fiction idea here he gets it he doesn't say oh no that's too that's too cerebral the audience will never understand it the most he'll say is can you make it work you have so much admiration for joe uh
1: i i've been watching his stuff since he was doing he-man and she-ra episodes
0: yeah he learned his lessons down in the down in the trenches
1: and you know, you wrote a Babylon Five for him. I'm—I'll admit I'm not the biggest Babylon Five fan. I like the ideas, but one of the problems I've always had with Babylon Five—it's not the dialogue. It's the dialogue all sounds scripted. You know, like whenever a character's talking, it sounds like the way you'd read it off a piece of paper instead of the way people yeah. talk. Yeah. I've always had that problem with Babylon Five, where
0: a n- lot of, none TV of the dialogues are like natural. That. A lot of TV shows are like that. And when you're writing science fiction, uh, there's always the risk that Murray the explainer is going to walk through the scene. So uh, on mine, I didn't, they said do the one where the parents won't let the doctor operate. And I don't want to do that. No, you've got to do it. I said, oh, come on, Star Trek did it and, and so-and-so did it and the Waltons did it. And everybody has done that one. And they always say to the kid, I don't want to do it. And then it hit me, and le- and I, and because I was talking to both Harlan and Joe, we were up at Harlan's house. And then it hit me, and I said, "Okay, can I kill the kid?" Everybody always finds a polite way to rescue the kid. How about we let the kid die? And Harlan and Joe, their eyes lit up, and they said, "Yeah, let's do it that way." And that was when I understood what the script was really about. Is everybody is so locked into their own belief system that they are going to They'd rather be right than save the kids, everybody, including the doctor. I went home and started working on the outline, the, and I'm hip-deep in the script, as somewhere in the third act, and the parents come in and say goodbye to the little boy because they know he's going to die. Got this chill up my spine. Now, only a few months before, I had adopted a little boy, eight years old, and I went had to go and check that he was all right. He was sound asleep. I had to go and check. And I went back, and it was like 3 in the morning, and I was trembling. And I pick up the phone, and I call Joe Straczynski. Now I know why you wanted me to write this script, you son of a bitch, and hung up. They got it. I And I hadn't realized it. I, here's this new parent who's madly in love with his, his little 8-year-old boy, and they want me to write a script about the love of the parents for the son. And nobody else would have written the scene where the parents have to say goodbye to the kid that they know is going to die. And nobody else would have... and. And I'll tell you something. In retrospect, I wish I had been even more ambitious and more brutal in that sequence of of with the parents that way. I should have been. I, I should have been. Uh, I should have had the audience in, in, gasping in tears. And so mea culpa, my bad. I didn't realize how far I could have gone or should have gone. But uh, the script worked, and I felt the final episode the way it all turned out turned out very well and I'm very proud of the director Richard Long the cast did a terrific job and but it was early by the way Uh, we did not know what Babylon 5 looked like yet we were still writing in a vacuum Uh, so I mean this is one of the earliest episodes so when you're writing for a series that's been on the air you know what you're writing to When you're writing for a series that you're still inventing, there's a lot of missteps along the way because it's not until you're six episodes in that you realize, ah, now we know what show we're doing. It is a difficult challenge.
1: That with when you worked on Superboy, because Superboy, at least to me, always was much more of the lighter, the lighter tone. And again, you're dealing with time. Time seems to be a thing with you.
0: Yeah, it was, you know what happened there? Is I get a call, would you like to write a Superboy? Well, I grew up with Superman in the 50s and, and even into the 60s. And so I loved the the Superboy uh, comic books and the Superman comic books. And so, I said, gee, a Superboy, let me see, how do you do Superboy? And I had to go back and be like 12 years old again in my mind. What did I love about Superboy? What are the stories I love? What can I tell that hasn't been done on a no-budget, half-hour show. And the more I thought about it, uh, the more I realized we could have some fun with these two aliens testing Superboy and not realizing that he's not your average Earth person. And uh, that struck me as just a fun approach to telling a story that wasn't like any other Superboy story. A lot of the other stories... I wanted to do something... I, I knew how to write the easy Superboy story. I wanted to write something that was different than the obvious one. Uh, I, I, that's usually my challenge is what can I do? I mean, because you go back to the trouble with Tribbles, and you look at, at, at almost everything I've done for continuing character series is what can I do that challenges the format? What can I do that, that expands what these characters are capable of? And that's gotten me in trouble a few times uh harv bennett was doing a show called starboy and i submitted a couple really nice outlines to him and he said these are great uh, we'll do these second season and i said harv if you don't exploring some if, if you don't start exploring some of these ideas now you're not going to get to a second season and and to harv's credit he didn't throw me out of the office he he understood where i was coming from uh but the show didn't last i mean there were like six episodes in, and then the, the star, the kid, Matthew Powers, whatever the actor's name was, he got injured in a stunt, and that was the end of the show.
1: brought up something interesting there. Whenever you, you said whenever you work with continuing characters, what do you find easier to write for? When you have continuing characters like Superboy, Ghostbusters, or Star Trek, or anthology things such as Twilight Zone and Tales from the Dark Side, where it's all self-contained,
0: what do you prefer? <laughs> There are two separate challenges. Ideally, I would, I like anthology series, but there aren't a lot of them. But ideally, the, it, the, but the problem with an anthology series is because you don't have continuing characters, you don't have continuing sets, props, and costumes, you, you, nothing is getting amortized from episode to episode. So your budget is tighter because anything you call has to be pulled out of stock or built. So you, you have to write a lot closer to the best, a lot cheaper. But there are opportunities with anthology series. With a show with the continuing characters, you can't kill or injure or change your continuing characters in any way. And that, so what you have to do is find something in the continuing characters, some piece of, of background that you can explore or some emotional uh, uh quirk that you can develop so like on hawaii 50 which is just a fun guilty pleasure the real joy there is they keep opening up the characters so we find out that uh i, I keep i keep wanting to say james con but it isn't it's his son but that character we find out he's claustrophobic. We find out how much he loves his daughter. We find out he, about his relationships with women. And, and so that becomes interesting quirks about this character that enrich the stories they tell around him. And I think that's the real fun of a uh, continuing show. So, and we had it a little with Star Trek. Dorothy Fontana fleshed out the character of Spock brilliantly over several episodes. The Tribble Show allowed us to get into Chekhov and Horace's background a little more. So I was kind of pleased with that.
1: I always had an idea of an anthology series with continuity, a series that takes place in the same fictional city in the future. Like maybe one episode would be a doctor story, and then the next episode would be a cop story, but it would make reference to the events of the doctor story and so on so each episode would have continuity and all of these things are affecting one another they're just not directly crossing over
0: but it's a, that's a great idea yeah uh, an anthology all set in the same uh, the problem there is you have to have it be an interesting universe so that the universe becomes a character in the story that you learn a little bit more about each time so that you find out what is the underlying mystery so that kind of like the cloud atlas was an anthology of different stories through time. Yeah, um, that's worth thinking about. That's an interesting idea.
1: This one might need a little bit of explaining from you. I have not seen your Blood and Fire episodes for Star Trek The New Voyages Phase 2. Are those the same Blood and Fire episode or the same Blood and Fire story that you had attempted to get on the air with Star Trek The Next Generation and for whatever reason did not?
0: What happened is, yeah, uh, Gene had promised we would have gay characters. He promised to the fans. He promised it in a staff meeting. And then uh, I was doing a story about the fear of AIDS was hurting blood donorship. And I wanted to to show that the crew of the Enterprise would donate blood to save lives. That was the heart and soul of the story. We hadn't had any episodes. We didn't know how the show was going to work, but I knew that if, that we had a critical blood donor donation shortage. And I knew that if we did an episode where the crew donated blood, people wanting, the fans would rush out to donate blood to be like the crew. I knew that. And and that's been proven at science fiction conventions. So that was the genesis of the story. And then it became about this fear of AIDS and, and we had cut back blood donorship. By the time I got to the first draft of the scripts, I tossed in, a line uh, uh, Riker asks how long have you two been together and the one guy says uh oh since the academy and the other guy isn't even in the scene so it's like understated if you're 13 you're not going to catch it if you're 23 oh gay characters cool and that would have been it and it got scuttled and i said if we're not going to do it here where are we going to do it if we're not going to do it now when are we going to do it and And everybody said, oh, great memo. Take the gay characters out. All right, fine. I turned it into Tasha Yar. But I was so unhappy and so disheartened that we had people aboard the show who were subverting the, uh, we had been promised, you can tell issue stories. We had been promised to that. And now we were being told, oh, you can't be dangerous because we're going to be on at four in the afternoon and we don't want to offend people. Oh, great. Okay, well, I'm out of here. And that was the primary reason I left is like, I, I, I am not going to be on a, uh, I'm not going to be on a show where I'm unhappy because I'm not being allowed to write. And uh, I left the whole thing blew up with fans, you know, speculating this and that. And I said, okay, I'll sell you copies of my script and the money's going to go to the AIDS project LA. People could see the script that wasn't being produced. And Jean was very embarrassed and very angry about it. Well, too bad. And uh, so years later, James Cawley, who, who, who has the most incredible enthusiasm and commitment of any fan, Star Trek fan, in the world, uh, because he's recreated Star Trek as Star Trek New Voyages, and uh, he calls me and says, can we shoot blood and fire? And Dorothy Fontana had already told me, these are good people, trust them. And I said, well, you're doing Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And it turns out I love Kirk, Spock, and McCoy much more than Picard and Riker and, you know, I, not that I don't like Picard and Riker and all those others, but Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are some are special to me. And so they had their guy, Carlos Pedraza, who translated it to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and then they passed the script to me, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, he, he's he got the characters, but there he's got things in here that we wouldn't do on the original Star Trek. So I did a rewrite on it, and expanded and fleshed out a few things. And then we shot, it ended up being a two parter. We shot 96 pages of script in 10 days. And it turned out beautifully. We got, I would say, about 80% of what I wanted. And uh, the commitment of the cast and crew, hardest working people I've ever worked with. And uh, it's available on YouTube. And you can see a hint of of the ambition that i think television needs to have in storytelling and we had the gay characters we what happened is james said uh uh let's have one of these gay characters be captain kirk's nephew peter and i thought about it and i said yeah i couldn't make that work and then as we worked on the script i realized the real heart and soul of the story is the relationship between peter kirk and captain kirk that brought it to life, and I think just in terms of structure and storytelling, and, and uh, you, we've shown it at conventions. We have shown it to, live, to large audiences. And aside from the fact that we've gotten standing ovations, the real thrill for me is sitting in the back of the room listening to the audience gasp uh, or laugh or break down crying. We have a scene at the end. A funeral scene that is so intense i I get choked up, and it's only a fictional character, but it is we have been through so much with these people by the time we get there uh it it it's really a knife in the gut so i so i'm obviously I'm very proud of that. I wish we'd had the time and the resources to fix some of the things we couldn't do right the first time around, but we got eighty or ninety percent of what it should be.
1: So then, in retrospect, is that better that it did not get made on Next Generation?
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, leaving Next Generation was one of the better things that happened in my life. At the time, I was very hurt and very disappointed that I wasn't going to be working on Star Trek again. I didn't take it personally. Later on, I found out it wasn't me, so I didn't have to take it personally. But I went off and walked myself around the block and realized I get to do now what I have been putting off for too long. I adopted the most marvelous little boy, and I started writing the novels that I wanted to write that I'd been putting off for way too long. And had, just as a writer, 10 of the best years of my life, uh, I got to write The Martian Child about how much I love my son, uh, got a Hugo and a Nebula for it. That wouldn't have happened with Star Trek, I'm pretty sure. Got to write uh, the Jumping Off the Planet trilogy, which was really great fun, uh, because I got to write Heinlein Juveniles, and I got to write two more books on the War Against the Tor, which really were a mind stretch for me. So, uh, and I got to work. I got to do my what the fans call my anti Trek, the Star Wolf series. So I had a really great decade after I left Star Trek because I got to be the writer. I got to start learning how to be the writer I wanted to be.
1: Obviously, these are both in pre-production, but I see you listed on two things called Axanar and The Thunderers. What are those?
0: Uh, Axanar, I'm a consultant. In fact, I have the latest script. I have to sit down and read it. A uh, it's a Star Trek independent film. It's a I hate to say fan film because it is being so professionally produced, but it is the it is one of those fan films. And Alec Peters is the producer, and he loves Star Trek. He brings a level of intention, and it's not a Star Trek script as much as it's about. There's a battle that's referred to in one of the episodes. I think it's the court martial episode. And he, that has intrigued him for years and years. So he wrote a script about the Battle of Axinar And it is a brilliant, brilliant story. And the script is shaping up very beautifully. So I'm eager to read the, the current version. And uh, that's a Kickstarter project that is uh, going to, they, they're going to be shooting very soon now. The Thunderers is a very interesting thing from Michael Capazzoli, who is based in Philadelphia. And he had a wonderful script by a guy named Kerry Warwicker about the first American football team in Wales, is a little town called the Aberystwyth. This is based on a true story that uh, the guys who couldn't get on the rugby team started a football team. Our our script isn't quite hasn't quite gelled. Can you fix it? And he gives me the Kerry Warwicker script, and the the second half of the script is near perfect. I didn't have to, I, you know, it's like okay, yeah, and I I could flesh out some things. That, first half of the script, I said, you know, I want to get to the excitement of the football uh, games a lot faster, because this is a great football story. And so I did a major rewrite on the first half, and just a light polish on the second half. And uh, I turned in the finished script, my draft, uh, a couple weeks ago. I have not heard from Michael uh, since then, because he's off but uh, the the bits he's posted on Facebook, apparently everything he everything is proceeding wonderfully. I think that uh, there's a, it's a a fun story. It's a it's a comedy. It's a drama. It's a romance. It's really about people coming of age by taking on a really big challenge of creating themselves as a team in a situation where there's not a lot of agreement that this team is even welcome and uh i think uh the the script that carrie did had a lot of value to it and and uh, myself i wanted to preserve the stuff i loved in carrie's script so i came in as a script doctor it was fun it was actually fun to get out of science fiction for a while and and write something that is just about people uh the other thing i did which isn't on IMDb, is I wrote a play two years ago called Uncle Daddy Will Not Be Invited. And I went back to my college and I said, uh, I, I, can we workshop this? I want to see how it plays in front of an audience. <laughs> and uh, we set it up, the theater guild at the college. We held some auditions, wonderful, talented group of people. Can't say enough good things about that theater arts department. Found two incredibly good actors, a guy named Stephen Brogan, another one, Alex Manalopoulos, an incredible stage manager named Kara Thaler and uh, we rehearsed for two three weeks put it on it two actors on a bare stage and we filled the auditorium for all the performances got a standing ovation each night uh got applause where we were supposed to got laughs where we were supposed to got gasps of horror where we were supposed to so i was very pleased because i'd never written a play before and sitting in the back of the theater listening to the audience was, I think, one of the most gratifying experiences, because for me it was like, do I really understand the audience well enough to make, the, to, to catch them up in this, in this story and these characters? And I think every writer should write a play at least once and discover by listening to the audience if you're in touch with your audience or not. And for me, it was very gratifying. It was better than being handed any kind of award, just knowing that the audience was moved and touched and inspired as powerfully as they were. That's really, you know, when you know you've succeeded in, in your craft, when you can listen to the audience.
1: Is there a way people can see that? Was it, what is any of the
0: the shows, uh, you know, any of the performances videota- taped? we did video the second night i have it i have not put it on youtube yet i might do that i haven't decided yet if i will but i haven't gotten around to it yet it's an hour-long play i i really want to uh find a, a theater and put it on properly and and maybe make a better production of it but uh i know the play works now
1: well where can people find you or, or find, I mean, I don't know if you've got a YouTube channel that's got whatever you might have the rights to of your, your old works or whatnot. Where can people contact you or get in touch with you?
0: Well, I'm on Facebook. It's I mean, real easy to find on Facebook. And my books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And uh, there is also www.gerald.com. I have somebody managing it and I don't check it as often as I need to because I'd rather be writing than looking at websites. But all of my books that are currently in print and available can be found at Gerald.com. So, uh, and there's stuff available on Amazon that is only in ebook format. Uh, some short stories. There's some stuff, very recent stuff, like 13 o'clock, 14 o'clock, some stuff at... uh, uh, I'm very proud of Nowhere Man, In the Quake Zone, Ganon, It's Spaceship. That one's a lot of fun. And so I, I, I have been on a uh, really good production streak or spurt or whatever for the last few years, and uh, uh, it's, it seems to be accelerating. I'm having a lot of fun writing some really good stuff. I just finished my vampire novel, and it's a different take on vampires. Very 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 different Uh, I've deconstructed the whole mythology of vampires and then I've also finished a novel called 13 14 15 o'clock which is in my both are in my agent's hands and I'm in the process of finishing a method for madness so uh, I'm having a lot of fun at the keyboard and and uh, uh, I you know I'm averaging a couple thousand words a day so that's really good for a a writer to be able to say hey I'm getting the job done
1: so you're you're not going to go quietly into that good night?
0: Hell no. Last time Angel of Death came to my door, I broke his arm. He walks with a limp now. I hope you guys
1: liked that little insight into old science fiction TV and some of the trials and tribulations, no pun intended, of what it was like working on these shows back then and just how much effort goes into the entertainment that we all consume so readily. I want to thank David Gerald for taking the time to speak with me. What you guys need to do is go to Gerald.com. That's David Gerald's official website, Gerald, G-E-R-R-O-L-D, dot com. And if nothing else, go and pick up some of his books, some of the DVDs that have his episodes in them, and just support this man as I think he is one of the great science fiction writers out there. And remember, you can go to my website, 1201beyond.com. We have T-shirts, we have tons of great radio shows, we have web comics, we have a whole lot of great stuff. So 1201beyond at gmail.com is where you can contact us, and 1201beyond.com is the place to go to find more of these. Radio Drone is a 1201 Beyond production.
0: Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.